Welcome to Follow Him, a weekly podcast dedicated to helping individuals and families with their Come Follow Me study. I'm Hank Smith. And I'm John, by the way. We love to learn. We love to laugh. We want to learn and laugh with you. As together, we follow Him. Hello, everyone. It's a good day here at the Follow Him podcast. My name is Hank Smith, and I'm your host. I am here with the delightful John, by the way. Welcome, John. (laughs) That's an adjective I don't hear with my family, but thank you. (laughs) You are delightful in every way. We want to remind everybody that you can find us on social media. We have a a great Instagram uh, and Facebook page that are run by the wonderful Jamie Nielsen. Um, You can get uh, show notes, transcriptions at followhim.co, followhim.co. Uh, and please rate and review the podcast. It really helps us out when you do that. I, I look forward to every week, to be honest. I mean, we've just had some brilliant experts on. Um, but way early on in our podcast, I don't know if you remember, back when we weren't podcasters, uh, we didn't know what we were doing. We invited Dr. Steve Harper on to the podcast. He graciously came when we didn't know what we were doing. Tell us about <laughs> Steve. He will be so surprised that we still don't know what we're doing. But, uh, <laughs> no, we're, we're so excited to have Steve back, and I am excited to have him back, especially for this section. Um, in fact, I'm going to read his bio. I have a book. I bought this like 10 years ago called Making Sense of the Doctrine and Covenants. And what I love about this book that uh, Dr. Harper wrote is sometimes uh, books sound like they are written for other scholars, and sometimes they sound like they're written for the rest of us. And this is one of those that is so easy to understand and has helped me tremendously in uh, addressing these sections. I always read this before we do our podcast and before we look at each section. And in the back of Making Sense of the Doctrine and Covenants, we've already had Steve on before, so I'm going to use this little shorter bio the about the author on the back uh, jacket cover here. Stephen C. Harper is an associate professor of church history and doctrine at Brigham Young University and one of the editors of the Joseph Smith Papers. After serving a mission in Canada, he told me that was uh, Winnipeg, and graduating from BYU, he earned a PhD in early American history from Lehigh University in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and taught for two years on the faculty of BYU-Hawaii. Brother Harper has received several fellowships and awards for his scholarship and writing, including the T. Edgar Lyon and Juanita Brooks Awards from the Mormon History Association. He and his wife, Jennifer Sebring Harper, are the parents of five children, and we understand he's currently serving as a bishop, so thank you for being with us, Dr. Harper, and welcome. Thank you, gentlemen. It's a pleasure. I would say if Edward Partridge was reincarnated, he'd be Steve Harper. Uh, he's, he's just oh. brilliant and wonderful. Um, I will say this to everybody listening. If you haven't, some of, some of you have joined us halfway through uh, because your friends, thank you for recommending us, um, recommended the podcast to you. I would highly encourage you to go back to our very, it's our second, I think it's our second interview that we did on the first vision with Dr. Harper. It is enlightening. It will just fill your soul with joy and incredible knowledge about the prophet and what he was, what he was going through at the time. There's nobody and Steve will disagree. He always does, but there's nobody on the planet that knows more about the first vision than Steve Harper. There really isn't. Um, maybe his mentors, he would say, uh, a couple of his mentors like, uh, Richard Bushman, and he's always giving credit to his mentors. And I think that's wonderful, but I hope you'll go back and listen to that. Listen to that oh, episode. 
Hank, I'm glad you said that. And I, I read, uh, I'm turning around because I'm looking at my, I have a shelf over there of church history, but uh, Steve's book, I think it's called Joseph Smith's First Vision. And that was great because he went through all of the different um, different accounts and and spoke about each one of them. But boy, so one of those last chapters about being a seeker, I still remember. In fact, I think I emailed you, I don't know how many years ago, and told you thank you for that, Stephen. So I'm glad you said that, yeah, Hank. That meant a lot to me. Yeah. Steve, let's jump into this uh, this week's lesson. It is one section of the Doctrine and Covenants. It's section 76 of the Doctrine and Covenants. I've noticed just even in the heading, you read Revelation given, Revelation given, Revelation given. Then you get to 76, and it doesn't say Revelation given to Joseph Smith. It says a vision given to Joseph Smith, the prophet, and Sidney Rigdon in Hiram, Ohio. So let's go back as far as you want and set us up to, to read this section with the right context in mind. Uh, in the beginning, uh, the gods created the heavens and the earth. <laughs> Go back as far as you want. <laughs> made, uh, uh, there are all kinds of religious ideas in the air, but it is overwhelmingly a Protestant country. And that means that it is very biblically based, but... Uh, the Bible is read in particular ways. You might, I, I sometimes use the metaphor of glasses. Everybody has glasses that they wear when they read the scriptures. And those glasses change how you read, what you see, what you're able to discern. And that's true for everybody. Uh, so Protestant early American glasses mean that uh, people read the Bible as the word of God and that they see in it salvation through Jesus Christ. I'll oversimplify here a lot, but, but that comes by faith, faith in Christ who uh, gives his grace to believers and uh, saves them from sin and death. Those who receive Christ as their Savior go to heaven, and those who don't go to hell. Could you do us a quick favor for those of our listeners who are listening, who know, who have heard the word Protestant and going, I don't know quite what that is. It comes from the word protest, right? Yes, that's right. Uh, so Protestants are Christians. They originate in Europe. They are dissatisfied with Catholic uh, Christianity. Uh, there's much that they love about it, but also much that they disagree with. And so... In one way or other, they um, they reform Christianity and begin to preach their own versions. They publish their own versions of the scree. So primarily uh, followers of John Calvin's teachings uh, come to the shores, the Atlantic shores of New England, Massachusetts, Connecticut, etc. Joseph Smith's ancestors are among them. And they bring a version of Christianity that is um, what we sometimes call Puritanism, um, Congregationalism, or Reformed. And it has uh, lots of important doctrines that concern us. But today, primarily, what we're concerned about noticing is that it's a heaven and hell a kind of soteriology, that is, doctrine of salvation. 
So Christians will go to heaven if they are faithful to Christ and accept him as Savior, and he accepts them in some versions, and and they'll go to hell if Christ is not their Savior. And in many of these theologies, heaven is very, very small, and hell is very okay. big. In other words, most people are going to hell, okay. deservedly so, <laughs> and very few, relatively, will go to heaven. That's kind of a depressing, so that, <laughs> kind of a depressing yeah. theology, but okay. Yeah, I uh I'm grateful for the restoration in many for many reasons, but one of them is that it radically radically revises that soteriology, yeah. that doctrine of salvation. And um what might be interesting for folks to notice is that section 76, which is really a series of visions that are narrated and then commented on okay. as well. It goes well beyond anything that had been restored before that. In other words, think of the Book of Mormon. Uh, there's no reason a, that a Protestant couldn't read the Book of Mormon and agree completely with its soteriology. And some have. There's a famously a, a Baptist Book of Mormon, a Baptist uh, person who weighs in and says, there's nothing wrong with the Book of Mormon. Yeah. It's perfectly in line with, with biblical teaching. And it is the, the reason for uh, other Christians sometimes to reject it is the way we get it, not anything it okay. says in particular. So the Book of Mormon says there's heaven and hell. There's two ways. There's, uh, you know, when you die, you go back to God who gave you life, and then you're, you're separated into heaven or, or hell. So um, what we want to notice is that Doctrine and Covenants section 76 is a little bit like going into higher math. I'm always uncomfortable using math metaphors because I have no idea <laughs> about math. Right? But you learn pretty simple math early on, you know, the basics. And then if you keep at it, you learn that math is more sophisticated, more complicated. It doesn't invalidate the basics right. you learn. Those are still the building blocks. But there's more to it than what you learned. And section 76 is the beginning part of the restoration that says there's, there's more, more to it, it okay. than you've ever heard before. <laughs> and it is the first of what we sometimes call the, the exaltation revelations. Uh, uh, President Nelson's terms, uh, he's talked a lot about salvation. Salvation is what we've been talking about so far, too. That's... That's Christians being saved by Christ to heaven. Okay. And uh, Latter-day Saints believe in salvation, but because of the restoration, we also believe in exaltation. We believe in heavens beyond heaven. Hmm. We believe in conditions of salvation that are more than just not being damned or right. going to hell. In fact, Latter-day Saints are the only people I know of who think you can be saved and damned at the yeah. same time. <laughs> Uh, That's exactly and, right. You know, when you ask when you ask Latter Day Saint, "Are you saved?" They have a, it takes half an hour for us to answer that question. Uh, we're just being asked for a yes or no answer, <laughs> but it takes half an hour. The reason it does is because of revelations like the one uh, beginning in section seventy six. It is spectacular. It is. it is. But I've heard you say before that if you 
joined the church in 1830s, 1840s, you didn't talk about the first vision. You talked about the vision. The earliest manuscript that we have of Section 76 begins with the great big words at the top, the vision. And this comes February 1832. So this is months before Joseph, uh, as far as we can tell, records his first vision. Uh, so the vision in the early days of the church meant Section 76. It was controversial from the beginning. Uh, you know, it essentially says Christianity as we've received it is perfectly fine, but it is kindergarten. And we're advancing into, you know, higher <laughs> math. And uh, there's more to the story of salvation than the simple version we've been told. And uh, so... As you might expect, that's uh, that throws people for a loop. Even Latter-day Saints, later in um, the early 1850s, as I recall, Brigham Young will give a, a talk, and he'll say, uh, <laughs> man, when the vision came along, that was tough for me to swallow. That was way outside anything I'd ever been taught before. And uh, he did a wise thing. He said, I did not reject it. I, I couldn't just... Um, Accept it all at once, but I decided to think and pray and pray and think. And as he did that, he learned by the Holy Ghost that the vision was right and good. So I'm, I'm grateful that he didn't just reject it because it was unfamiliar. You remember Joseph saying things in January of 1843. He said, the saints fly to pieces like glass every time I try to teach them something new. <laughs> of Jesus Christ. Brigham Young was open, right? Brigham Young was wide open to the restoration through Joseph Smith, and he struggled to internalize Section 76. Mm. He recognized that it was just so different mm -hmm. from what he did. So for taught. our listeners, they need to get out of the mindset of, oh, I've been taught this since I was, since I was two, right? About the three degrees yeah. of glory. We need to get to, okay, this is brand new for these people who think. Brand new. You yeah. think heaven is small and Matt. hell is big. Is that a lot of the Latter-day Saints? Yeah. Oh, yeah. These people are Protestants for their whole okay. life. So Brigham Young, for example, comes from the Methodist tradition, and he brings with him uh, the idea that you can influence your salvation. You can, you can come to Christ and receive his provenient grace, a gift of his grace, but that, that'll qualify you for heaven, and otherwise you'll go to hell. And that's pretty much all there is to it. I, I have that line. Are you guys old enough to know the 1976 uh, First Vision movie where the, they've got the Protestant so. minister saying, saved or damned, that's all there is to it. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's a, that's a way of capturing what I remember the, uh, the newer First Vision movie where the man looks at Joseph and says, be careful, boy. Your eternal soul is at stake, right? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Steve, could Indeed. you comment on yes, the sir. idea of universalism? You bet. Universalism is certainly a thread that is running through and under and around Section 76. Uh, universalism is a response to versions of Protestantism that are especially emphatic about God's um, plan being to damn most of his children. Um, and universalists, including Joseph Smith's father, uh, who, who 
joins a universalist society in the late 1700s, uh, they read the scriptures, they read the same Bible with a different pair of glasses, and they focus on lots of passages that show that God is love, right? They like the, the teachings of John and other places that, that say God's not a, a damning God. That's not his dominant nature. God is full of love. God wants to save his children. He will. It's only reasonable that he's going to save all of his children. Now, they may, they may deserve some punishment for their bad behavior, and they'll get it. But in the end, God will save his children, all of them. That's universalism in a nutshell. And as you can see, it's a response against, it's a reaction to uh, versions of Protestantism that are considered by universalists to be unreasonable and overly harsh readings of the Bible. You can see then why he doesn't go to church. Joseph Smith Sr., Yeah, right? Because yeah. at church, the Presbyterian right. church, you're, if God doesn't choose you, sorry. Right? That's the Presbyterian yeah. version that Lucy Mack joined. What we're noticing then is that the revelations that Joseph Smith receives are in conversation with uh, teachings that are in the air, right? The re revelations don't come in a vacuum. They come because uh, people have questions and concerns, and there are ideas colliding with each other, right? There are arguments that are ongoing and different versions and visions of what the future holds. And it's not that there's nothing out there to think about and Joseph needs to fill the void. It's that there's lots of things out there to think about and competing, and he needs to know which of, of them is right. Uh, he needs to understand and he, he particularly in this instance is revising the Bible. He's reading the Bible through very, very carefully. And here in the uh, early part of 1832, he with his scribe, Sidney Rigdon, and Rigdon himself is a Reformed Baptist minister. So he's steeped in this, uh, in this argument about what the nature of, of God's salvation is. Uh, Rigdon knows it well. He knows the versions of it well, the alternatives to it. And he's argued uh, for a salvation through Christ, for sure. And Joseph and Sidney are reading the Bible carefully. By now, they're in John, and they're in uh, the fifth chapter of John, and they're reading the part that says that the just will be resurrected to glory and the unjust resurrected to damnation. And you can't live in their time and place without wondering what that means, right? It's pretty black and white. And as Joseph reads it, he thinks, well, what does it mean? What, how exactly does it apply? Who qualifies uh, as the, the just mm -hmm. and who qualifies as the wicked? And he, he knows enough about human nature and behavior to think that's, there's no nuance in that. And, and of course, uh, those are reflected and, uh, in the various versions of churches and, uh, doctrines of salvation in the day. So it's, um, overly simple to say he's just got John five on his mind and nothing else is in there competing 
with John 5. The fact is, he's in John 5, but he's got a whole bunch of other ideas colliding with and allying with and bumping off uh, what he reads. And that's the reason he needs more light, more understanding. To me, you just described the process of revelation for a lot of us. Ideas, thoughts, I'm, you know, competing. Like, what am I supposed to do here? Uh, John 5, uh, this is the Lord speaking, correct? Uh, he says, marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. So there's either eternal life or damnation. And Joseph's history tells us that at this point he reflects and he says, well, what, what does this mean? Right? What does this passage mean? If everybody is rewarded for the deeds done in the body during their mortal life, then how will this actually work out in practical reality? Right? There's not just people who are purely great and then purely evil. There's not just two camps. To get uh, an A in my class, you have 930 points, and those who get 929, <laughs> I, those are the ones you're like, I'm so sorry, right? But, but we have to put the line somewhere. Uh, so, oh, that would be so hard to see salvation. You're, you were one work away, right? There's from, this razor-thin yeah. line that divides it, yeah. yeah. And that's why this this whole thing just tastes good. But could I, um, could I ask you, Steve, the, the JST changes resurrection of good and evil in John 5, 28 and 29, to the resurrection of the just and the unjust. What is the timing mm -hmm. of the JST? Is that bef before section 76? Mm. So section 76 is the reason for, for that, that revision, oh, okay. cool. right? So they're reading John 5 as the as they're revising the Bible, thinking about it. This, this is how is it simultaneous. happens. They... Yeah, they read slowly and deliberately. Sometimes you can read past, you know, whole books and no real engagement, nothing really much at stake. But here there's a lot at stake. So we're reading slowly, deliberately, and we're wondering what it means, right? We're very interested in knowing more. And so this revelation, this series of visions is the catalyst for making changes okay. Uh, in that passage. Before we get into the verses yes. themselves, can you give us, can we just back up a little bit? It's February of 1832. Can you give us just a little background? Yeah, it's been almost two years since the church was organized in New York. And then at the end of that year, Joseph is commanded to leave New York with all of the saints in New York and gather to Ohio. So he and Emma have moved to Northeastern Ohio and one of the converts there is Sidney Rigdon, Sidney and Phoebe Rigdon. Uh, Sidney had been a very influential minister in a Reformed Baptist tradition. Uh, he and uh, like-minded people are looking forward to, they'll even sometimes use the word restoration, a restoration of Christianity. They're careful readers of the Bible. Uh, they believe in uh, faith in Christ, repentance, and baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. And when the Book of Mormon comes through and the missionaries say, you're all, you're right there and just add to that the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands and you're, you're most of the way home. They recognize that this is what they've been looking for. 
Sidney Rigdon reads the Book of Mormon carefully for a couple of weeks and comes to the conclusion there's no possible way a mortal person wrote that, at least not one in the 19th century. It is God's work, and he decides to forsake his ministry. The, his congregation had just built him a house, and so he he's homeless uh, because he embraces That's the something we gospel. haven't mentioned. He says something to his wife, right? Are you ready to go? Are you ready to go into poverty with for for this? Right? And she says yes. She really is a lovely, uh, faithful Christian. All right, I've counted the cost, she says. I know what we're in for and I'm I'm all in. And uh, that made it possible for him uh to be all in and and he becomes a major asset, right? He immediately travels to New York and meets Joseph Smith and there, the Lord gives section 35 of the Doctrine comes, which calls Sidney to be a scribe, uh, to help Joseph Smith in this project of reading the Bible very carefully and closely and making substantial revisions <laughs> to it. And so here we are now, uh, almost a couple of years later, they've moved back to Ohio and they've moved south, about 35 miles south of where Sidney Rigdon was living and where Joseph and Emma found short-term housing when they arrived. They've been invited to live with uh, Alice or Elsa and John Johnson in their home. They have a lovely home, the large family that's mostly grown up now. And so they've got some space and they invite Joseph and Emma uh, to bring their twins and come and live with them. And uh, Sydney moves down and lives in a home next door. And this is to make it possible for them to have time and space to to really go to work on their revision of the Bible. So that's where they're living, and that's the setting here. Uh, you, you may know the wonderful uh, story of Sister Johnson. She's the one who's rheumatic arm. She has rheumatism in her arm. And uh, uh, several of the members of this uh, Campbellite church, it's sometimes called because the, the main leader of it is Alexander Campbell, his father before him. And so these Campbellites or disciples uh, are some of the ones who are most interested in and likely to convert when they hear the restored gospel. And a group of them and others visit Joseph Smith, and that includes Sister Johnson. And they, they raise the question in that meeting, here's Sister Johnson, is God given anyone power on earth today like the ancient apostles had to heal the sick? And while that conversation is going on, Joseph walks across the room, gives her a healing blessing, and she is miraculously healed. And they all know it. Our, one of our very best sources for this is a book about the disciples of Christ in the in the Western Reserve. That is this area of northeastern Ohio. And it, it says there's no way around it. Uh, she was healed. She was sick, and now she's not. <laughs> and um, it says it was the mental and moral yeah. shock produced on her system by Joseph Smith's audacity that did it. And so the, the fact of the matter is she was healed, and then the interpretation is up to you. Yeah. You can decide. I decide it was the power of God uh, that that was manifest through Joseph Smith. So that's the setting. No wonder sister Johnson and, and brother John Johnson are, are wanting Joseph and Emma to come and live with them. They want to foster the revel, the, the restoration as best they can. They can, they can help by providing some housing and some 
offset some costs, and that'll buy Joseph some time to do the Lord's work. And it's in their home, we think. Uh, we're, we're nearly certain it's in their home where Joseph, we know that's where he receives many revelations and, uh, that's where section 76 comes. This is when we wish we had a magic school bus, right? And we'd load all yeah. the people <laughs> listening on the, on the bus go, go and visit and go to the Johnson home and sit in that room and, uh, feel as people have felt, I've felt, you've felt feel uh the power that comes from from realizing this is a place of revelation some of the greatest revelations of the restoration were given there first time that i was i ever got to visit there i was like i think i was in cleveland at a youth conference and we took a quick break and drove down there and and the missionaries uh senior couple told me that there was a a couple of women who were there who weren't members of the church and they were spending some time with them and I was with that group and when we walked into the room, one of these women looked at her friend and then looked at the missionary and said, whoa, what happened in here? And I was yeah. just like, wow, there's, there's a sensitive soul right there because yeah. she knows something happened here in, in this, this place. And, you know, the light is coming through the windows. It's beautiful. And, uh, yeah, it's one of those places you just want to sit there and soak it in for a while. I hope everybody has a chance to go. The church has done a really wonderful job of restoring it yeah. too. It's, it's, uh, it's as close as you can get to walking into Joseph Smith's world. Yeah, well put. And it's it's not a, a city. It's it's a, a home out there in, in farmland. It's very there's corn. It's very beautiful. And the um, the famous tar and feathering has yet to occur out there, right, Steve? But it's there. We're one month one away. One month away. One month away, about a, about five weeks away, till they're going to drag Joseph out of that house, and it's the antagonistic wing whose you know siblings and uh, uh, neighbors have converted to the restored gospel, and they're pretty upset with Joseph, and they break in and drag him out of the house and uh, drag Sydney out of the house next door, beat them soundly, uh, cover them in hot pine tar that's laced with acid, and then break a feather pillow over their head to finish the humiliation. And that's a, that's going to happen a month right after this. Yeah. 24th of March. And uh, the visions are on the 16th of February. So you might think of in some ways the price Joseph pays and Sydney pays for receiving this revelation and, and the others, right? The price they pay for restoring the gospel is tar and feathers beating, um, being hated by neighbors. And Ezra Booth has a lot to do with this. Yep. He is a Methodist uh, minister who has converted and he watched Elsa Johnson be healed. He knows he was she was right healed. There. Knows she was healed by yeah. the power of God. And then he went with Joseph all the way to Missouri and back. And he, he, he decided that Joseph was a real person <laughs> and therefore no prophet. People do that even today, but I don't understand that way of reasoning. Where in the scriptures are we told that prophets aren't real yeah. people? We've got a hundred stories in the scriptures that prophets are real people who do real stuff, make mistakes, have body odor, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and Booth, for some reason, decides uh, Joseph Smith's just not not prophetic enough, whatever bar that is, whatever standard that is. So he bails out, and he and Simon's writer – and others then uh, really antagonize 
uh, the saints and Joseph, especially including uh, violence on Joseph's person. Um, we haven't talked about Simon's yet. Do you want to just give us a little bit on Simon's writer before we move? He's, he's another one of these uh, uh, disciples who converts, and then it's really short-lived. Uh, some sources say one reason he gives for his defection is that Joseph misspells his name in a revelation. Man, if Joseph had to be held to that standard by everybody, if, if all prophets had to be, you know, spelling bee champs, we'd, I don't know how many we'd really have over the course of history. That's not one of the criteria of being a right. prophet. That's... You just have to be called by where God. Where do we get these? I mean, we might as well talk about this for a second, Steve, because where do we get these these assumptions about prophets? Like some people, they should never get sick. They should probably win the lottery every time. I mean, where's the line? I call it hypothetical history. That's where we decide what the past should be like based on nothing more than our imagination, yeah. right? If he's a prophet, then, then he will always be nice to everybody. If he's a prophet, then, and those, those things are not evidenced anywhere. There's no scriptures that say no. them. There's no reason to believe them, except we just decide that they should be true. They're just our imagination. That's a terrible, terrible way to do history because when you see the evidence, it's going to upset your hypothetical version of what the past should be like. So those kinds of assumptions are subtle and dangerous. They're not real. They have no basis in reality or what's what actually was. The scriptures tell us that truth is things as they actually were and will be and are to come. And uh, that's what we ought to study, right? Yeah. Our scriptures are clear full of stories of prophets who are real people whom God called and he worked with them and they struggled and faltered and... He worked with them, and they accomplished his work miraculously because they were mere mortals who allied with him and overcame and never never did in this life become perfect, but who were called by God. And that's, that's the accurate historical view of what a prophet is. Any assumptions to the contrary are poorly founded and are going to be right. disrupted. You're, you're, I, you said once in our earlier interview, if you... I, I'm trying to remember the exact phrase, but if your faith is based on bad expectations, it will easily be overturned. Um, well, uh, and then so, uh, that was Ezra Booth, right? He went to Missouri and went, this doesn't look like any promised land thing, and then saw Joseph Smith's <laughs> humanness and and maybe yeah. was converted to some degree by a sign, which isn't, uh, that can maybe open your heart, but then you've got to get the real thing and... Steve, I was just going to say, this happens a lot today to our students and to others who have some version in their head, and maybe they say, I got it from primary, I got it from seminary, I got it from, you know, I had this version in my head, and then I read the actual history, and it doesn't, it does, <laughs> it's not as Disneyland as, it, as I thought it was, and so I'm out. Um, but what you're saying is, change your expectations, analyze those assumptions. Yeah, make yeah. them real. Make them real instead of hypothetical. It, frankly, it comes, in my opinion, of having been somewhat lazy to begin with, and then all of a sudden paying attention and being jarred by that transition, right? Uh, if you've been paying attention all along, it's not so shocking to find out that things aren't what you what you thought. And I'm also sometimes frustrated 
when people blame them or the church, right? Well, they didn't tell me this or they that. One of the uh, principles, as you know, of Come Follow Me is you are responsible for your own gospel learning. You find, you work hard to seek the truth. Don't blame someone else. Don't blame your seminary teacher. Now, I'm, if I were talking out of the other side of my mouth, I'd, I'd be wanting religion professors like me and seminary teachers to make sh- darn sure they teach the truth in love by the power of the Holy Ghost. So I'm not trying to uh, skirt that obligation, but every person is ultimately responsible to seek and discern the truth for themselves. And it frustrates me when people blame the church as if there's supposed to be a ultra regulation on primary lessons, right? There's somebody from correlations sent to sit in on every primary class to make sure nothing uh, devious gets taught there. That's, these are just unrealistic expectations. And the Lord is, the Lord has placed the expectation on us to seek learning by study and by faith out of the best books. And if we don't do that, I don't think we can fault anybody else for not doing it for us. I think that President Nelson's uh, emphasis on hear him, uh, on learning to hear the Lord, he's not saying even hear me. He's saying hear, hear the Lord, uh, get your own inspiration and and he, learn to hear him. I, I love that emphasis. And also the uh, the phrase that I think President Nelson has used, the continuous restoration Um and this is this whole thing is part of that. Yeah. Uh, this is a, a huge example of the Lord wants to give us more. This whole section, and we don't want mm-hmm. anybody. We don't want anybody to be discouraged. It's a good time right now to say, you know what, I'm going to learn. What is that Steve Harper book? Let me look that up. I'm going to go. I'm, I want to learn. Right. It's a good time today. Whoever whoever's listening to us right now to say, well, I want to become. I, I want to know this kind of stuff, because I'll tell you, the books have been written. Yeah. There is, there is plenty of them out there. Have we ever had an easier time? Have we ever had more resources at our fingertips uh, with our phones in our hands? I mean, this is an incredible time to live. And I think Hank, probably three or four times we have heard some of our wonderful guests say something like, it's not that you know too much church history, it's that you don't know enough. You know, you took one thing and yeah. you didn't you didn't say now wait a minute I got to learn the rest I want to know the context who was there what they say and and that's why I love this we're we're trying to get as much as we can yeah that's really well said I yeah. think all right Steve um, I think I do you feel like we're ready to get into the revelation is there anything else we need to know about sure. the players involved um the Lord yeah is the most important one so let's 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 hear what he has to say the first ten verses or an introduction. Uh, don't know exactly the nature of it. It might be a kind of a composition by Joseph Smith or Cindy Rigdon or, or both. Maybe it's revealed to them. Hard, hard to say for sure, but um, it's, it's certainly a prologue to the visions that are coming. So it's a very beautiful passage. Uh, the Lord, this first person voice is there, uh, beginning from verse 5 on. Let's notice this then. Let's notice that the first uh, four verses are a kind of a prologue, probably appended afterwards, kind of uh, attached as an okay. intro. Say, you guys got to really listen to this, <laughs> hear this. This is coolest stuff you're ever going to hear. And then we transition at verse five into the Lord's first person voice. Maybe we ought to read uh, at least part of that, five through ten. Okay. 
for thus saith the Lord, I, the Lord, am merciful and gracious unto those who fear me and delight to honor those who serve me in righteousness and in truth unto the end. Great shall be their reward and eternal shall be their glory. And to them will I reveal all mysteries, yea, all the hidden mysteries of my kingdom from days of old. And for ages to come will I make known unto them the good pleasure of my will concerning all things pertaining to my kingdom. This is really beautiful stuff. Yeah, notice what it's telling us about the nature mm. of God, yeah. right? The very first thing he tells us is, I'm merciful. I'm gracious. I'm gracious. Anybody who shows any sort of love for me, I delight to honor them. I'll give you all the mysteries and all the glory you can imagine <laughs> and more. It's a, it's a really wonderful disclosure. And remember that it's coming in the context. It hasn't been very long since the Reverend Jonathan Edwards, the most influential preacher in American history, has said, God abhors you. He hates your guts. He's, he's dangling you over the pit of hell like a spider on a web. And any minute now, it might sever and you'll be dropped into the abyss. That's, that's the flavor of preaching that is characteristic. Wow. And I don't mean to say that's all there is besides this, but, but everybody in this, who lives in this world of 1832 America knows that that's one version of God that's pretty pervasive and, and dominant. So listen to the Lord restore who he is. I am merciful and gracious. That, yeah. Just that first introduction of himself is very significant. It's, it's important. Didn't uh, Joseph Smith teach? In order to worship God, you must know what he's like. You must know his personality. You got to know yeah. his traits. Okay, 8, 9, and 10. Yea, even the wonders of eternity shall, shall they know, and things to come will I show them, even the things of many generations, and their wisdom shall be great, and their understanding reach to heaven, and before them the wisdom of the wise shall perish, and the understanding of the prudent shall come to naught. For by my spirit will I enlighten them, and by my power will I make known unto them the secrets of my will. Yea, even those things which I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor yet entered into the heart of man. So what we have here is a loving God, a merciful and gracious God who delights to give us more, right? There's a whole lot more, he says here in verses 5 through 10. I've got more to give you. And buckle up because we're going to, uh, you know, we're going to graduate school here in soteriological uh, thinking. That is, uh, plans of salvation are more complex and more beautiful, more vast than you've ever imagined before. And I want to give them to you. So a terrific prologue. Notice that verse 11, we transition back to the voice of the visionaries now, the voices of the visionaries. So we're listening lots of times throughout this section to Joseph Smith and Sidney report what they see. This is characteristic yeah. of sections of the Doctrine and Covenants that are reporting on visions. There are really two that are like this, uh, section 76 and section 138. And as you know, 138 is a series of visions Joseph F. Smith experienced in the last uh, month or so of his life uh, where he uh, looked into the world of the spirits of the dead and saw a variety of things there and uh, then commented on what he described, what he saw and then commented on what he saw. And then has the Lord also comments on what he sees. So this, the composition of 76 and 138 are different because they are reports of 
visions by visionaries with commentary from them and and as we've just seen commentary from the lord so we ought to look for um those kind of markers that tell us who we're hearing from and and what the nature of their uh, of what they're telling us is we also want to now be really mindful of the answer to the question right that 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 evoke this um, revelation in the first place. Joseph is asking, what is the nature of the resurrection of the just, and what's the nature of the resurrection of the wicked? And if we pay careful attention, we will notice that there clearly is a resurrection of the just and a resurrection of the wicked, but in between them, there is a whole bunch else. That it's, instead of the uh, black and white understanding that we start the revelation with when we're done the lord has restored an immense amount of more complex uh salvation so it's very useful to pay attention to that from the beginning all right so verse 11 we hear from joseph smith and Sidney rigdon they tell us this revelation narrates itself right most of the revelations in the doctrine and covenants are uh, you joining the middle of a conversation yeah. that's already underway. And it's easy to be lost. Uh, you just, thus saith the Lord, and he answers a question, and you weren't, ne- weren't necessarily there for the the question, and you're lost unless somebody explains it to you. Not this one. In this one, they tell us when they were, where they were, what they were thinking about, what they were doing. So they narrate the vision for us itself, and they begin with this spectacular testimony of uh, what happens when you read your scriptures carefully and marvel about what they mean and wonder and meditate Mm. and seek and then receive revelation. So at verse 20, they begin telling us what they saw. And the first thing they saw is the greatest thing of all. Should we read 20 through 24? Sure. We beheld the glory of the Son on the right hand of the Father and received of his fullness and saw the holy angels and them who are sanctified before his throne, worshiping God and the Lamb who worship him forever and ever. And now, after the many testimonies which have been given of him, this is the testimony last of all which we give of him, that he lives For we saw him, even on the right hand of God, and we heard the voice bearing record that he is the only begotten of the Father, that by him and through him and of him the worlds are and were created, and the inhabitants thereof are begotten sons and daughters unto God. Man. Okay. That's pretty good, isn't it? It's just, that's the pen of heaven. You know, even just the cadence is nice. It's... It is very beautiful. And this may very well be rigged in uh, Sydney's composition. I don't know. Nobody knows for sure. But Rigdon has much more of that gift than Joseph yeah. does. Now, so I, I don't mean to be definitive about that. I don't know. But uh, we'll, as we'll see, the Lord tells him several times, write that down before you, before you lose the spirit of it. <laughs> and um, they certainly wrote a beautiful piece here. Notice the... The several things. First of all, it's we. We bear this witness. And then notice um, how sensory it is. We heard, we saw, we felt. 
This is a witness that's unimpeachable. You've got two visionaries seeing this, and you can reject it, but you cannot refute it. This is a powerful piece of, of testimony. Some people might be somewhat confused by this is the testimony last of all which we give up and they might hear that as if it was chronological like the last one. as if yeah. they're done they're never going to bear their testimony again what they mean there is not chrono- chronological they mean sort of yeah. ultimate this is the ultimate testimony we give of him he lives we saw him he is god's son we saw them standing right next to each other not long ago i I watched a little clip from a new website that is a very polite uh, new site that is uh, antagonistic to the restored gospel. So it's it's a new way to go about um, refuting the restored gospel, and that is by doing it with love and all sincerity. So the people running this site are are trying a new approach, but the little video they were doing was, has anybody ever seen God? And they said, no, the Bible clearly says that nobody's seen God in the Gospel of John. And they knew very well that uh, Exodus and other places said Moses saw God face to face. So they, they spun that and they said, well, it's poetic. It's, uh, that's euphemistic, right? That's how they did it in the Old Isaiah, Testament. Isaiah, right? Isaiah and said, I, I saw Isaiah. the Lord. I mean, that's the exact phrase. Right. I saw mm-hmm. the Lord. Yeah, but they, that, their interpretation of that was, but it's it's poetic. Okay. Isaiah also said he saw all kinds of things that don't exist, and therefore. <laughs> but I sat there waiting for them to say, what do we do with the book of Acts, where Stephen sees the father and the son on his right hand, and they avoided that one. Yeah. All right. A little harder to explain that one away. And uh, that is the same testimony that Joseph and Sidney bear right here. We saw Christ. On the right hand of God. He is God's only begotten Son. He is the creator of worlds without end. And the inhabitants of those worlds are God's sons and daughters. That is the ultimate testimony. And it's really a, a beautiful thing to we've, have here. We've mentioned this before, John, but I think it, it's the fact that there's two people, a shared vision. Sydney's going to be the same way, isn't he, Steve? He's going to end up leaving, become distanced from the church, but he he is he he believes this till the end. What he saw, oh, absolutely, he does. He'll actually use this uh, uh, to make his case uh, when when he is making a claim to be the next leader of the church after Joseph. He'll say, "I it should be me by virtue of me being the shared uh, mm-hmm. visionary." Of the heavenly glories, right? He makes other points too, but this is one of his main points. Yeah. So he always will believe it. There's no reason yeah. to deny it. Notice the juxtaposition, right? What happens next, in other words, is we go from a vision of God and Christ to a vision of the fallen angel, Lucifer, perdition. It's a sad uh, and a jarring reversal. And it's meant to be, right? We're meant to have the ultimate testimony pick us up and then a really depressing view of what happened in heaven after that. So starting in 25 or so, and uh, we go down through um, 35 or so, 37, 
38. And this is a, this is the saddest part of this whole thing. This is the vision of the fall of Lucifer and of those who followed after him. Uh, they become perdition, meaning lost, forever lost. Uh, that's, the, that's the saddest word in the whole Doctrine and Covenants, perdition, in verse 26. He was called perdition for the heavens wept over him. Wow. Right? You, you guys are both parents. You have, we have a hard enough time when our kids are in trouble or hurt, uh, and, and we really, really struggle when they stray from their covenants or something. This is the feeling that you have when there is no hope, no hope for them. Perdition. That's what that word means. Mm. Gone, utterly, completely lost. I mean, that's, that's the saddest part yeah. is you, you have this right. option ahead of you. And you, you turned it down, and you chose a different path. Chose it knowingly. knowingly, too, right? It's not an ignorant choice, not a, not a, not a, um, you know, a knee-jerk reaction. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's truly sad. This is the saddest part of the whole revelation. You would remember this, Steve, but Joseph Smith, there's a statement from him that says, to comprehend God, you must go to the highest of highs and into the darkest abyss. And that feels like this. This section. This is the darkest yeah. abyss. He has seen into the darkest abyss, and it is depressing. Look at verse 34. Concerning these, the, the followers of Satan in, in the pre-mortal realm, there is no forgiveness in this world nor in the world to come. That's, that's utterly yeah. lost. Now, uh, you know, people might say, well, that's harsh of God. Uh, well, it's not God doing it. <laughs> It's, it's, this is Satan and his followers doing it. They had a choice to make. You, I guess God could force them, but that's not who he is. Uh, our children don't like it when we get, when yeah. we force them. I didn't, I don't like it. My parents never forced me to do anything, but I wouldn't have liked it if they did. I would have rebelled and resisted. So God is loving. He's merciful. He's generous, as we've already seen. He would save them if they wanted him to. They don't. That's the point. That's why he's weeping. Right. That's why it's so sad. I, my daughter asked me once, she's just thinking about, you know, we talk about outer darkness and she said, why would anybody, I mean, why would God send anyone there? And I'm going, God doesn't send anyone there. They choose it. They, they look at him and say, I want to be as far away from you as possible. Right. Send me to that place where I am not close mm -hmm. to you. And she said, oh, you know, it just broke her heart. Why would anyone choose that? Why would anyone choose that? I said, I don't know. I don't know. It can be hard to understand. I don't yeah. pretend to understand it. But, but there is this common thinking that if it, it, Socrates and others, if, you know, if you know the good, you'll do the good. It's an assumption about uh, an optimistic assumption about human yeah. nature. Well, human nature doesn't bear it out. <laughs> it's not true. There are people who know the good and who don't want the good. They know God and they don't want anything to do with him. And uh, that's it's how it is. And heaven weeps because of it. Please join us for part two of this podcast.